Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DBI's. Tonight's guest is author Christopher Kolakowski. Chris, in addition to being a five-time author, is also the director of the Wisconsin Veterans Museum in Madison, Wisconsin. During his lifetime, he also served brilliantly at other distinguished historical museums, such as the Douglas MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia, and the General George Patton Museum and Center for Leadership at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And he was also the director of the Perryville Battlefield Preservation Association. This Saturday, October 8th, will mark the 160th anniversary of the Civil War Battle of Perryville, the largest Civil War battle that took place in the state of Kentucky. Tonight, Chris and I will discuss the highlights and key historical aspects of that battle. Chris is eminently qualified to discuss the significance of the Battle of Perryville because in 2009, he released his book, The Civil War at Perryville, Battling for the Bluegrass, which discusses this battle. Chris, welcome back to the show. It's always a great honor and privilege to have you here. Would you please set the stage for our listeners about what led to the Battle of Perryville taking place? Well, thanks again for having me. It's always great to be on. Um, the Battle of Perryville, as you mentioned, October 8th, 1862, and uh, it's the culmination of the 10-week Kentucky campaign. The Confederates had attempted to uh, invade Kentucky and uh, turn it from Union control to Confederate control. And a series of maneuvers actually put them very, very close to the cusp of success. But uh, after the fighting at Perryville on October 8, 1862, the expedition was judged a failure, and the retreat that started at Perryville would not end until the Confederates were back in Tennessee. So in some ways, it's actually also not just the high watermark of the Kentucky campaign, but it's the high watermark of the Confederacy in the West. So when you say that, so Kentucky, at first, when the war, Civil War began, it was a neutral state. Yeah. But it used by this time, a Perryville was no longer a neutral state. Is that correct, Chris? That is correct. Uh, it was. It tried to be neutral and tried to kind of stay between two fires, if you will. Uh, but by September of 1861, with the armies moving in in both directions, uh, the Kentucky government in Frankfurt voted to remain loyal to the United States. However, there was another Confederate government or Confederate loyal government, another state government that formed at Russellville near Bowling Green about the same time. And uh, in what's called the Russellville Convention, they asserted that they were the legitimate uh, government of Kentucky and uh, voted to secede and join the Confederacy. So Kentucky is one of the very few states that has a star on both the U.S. and the Confederate flags and had senators and representatives in both the U.S. Congress and in the Confederate Congress. Now, but by, 18, by summer of 1862, it's, it's a, in Union control. Okay, who was the overall commander of the Confederate forces when they invaded Kentucky? The overall commander of the Confederates was Braxton Bragg. Um, he is, this is his first campaign in Army Command. He'd taken over from uh, PGT Beauregard and um, you're already starting as the campaign goes on, starting to see some of the traits that will limit his effectiveness as an army commander, to be very, very polite about it. Um, he's, he's, he's aggressive, he can be a good strategist, but he also is somebody that can't think more than one move ahead. And he also is prone to, um, actually my, my historian colleague, Ken No believes that Bragg is manic depressive um, with the you know the high 
highs and lows that that implies. And I think that's probably as, as best as one can. Um, I think that's a pretty good explanation for, for, you know, why he acts and kind of his, his style of leadership as the campaign goes on. Isn't it true that Jefferson Davis really thought highly of Bragg? Is that true? That is. That is. As a matter of fact, when Bragg finally loses command of this army um, in November of 1863, Jeff Davis will actually promote him and make him the military advisor to the president of the Confederacy. So he'll be Davis's military advisor for basically effectively the balance of the war for the last year, year and a half of the war. Now, you said the Bragg's objective was to bring Kentucky into the Confederacy. If he had succeeded in that goal, was he going to go further? Would he have gone to like Ohio or Illinois? Or was he just going to stop at Kentucky? What was his grand strategy? The, uh, from what I can tell, they hadn't thought anything beyond Kentucky. Mm. Um, and actually, just taking Kentucky would have been a big deal because, you know, we told, when, when you study the Civil War, people talk about the importance of the Mississippi to the South. Mm. What the Mississippi is to the south, the Ohio is to the north. Mm. And the state that has the longest border on the Ohio River is Kentucky. Mm. So if you can cut the cut the Ohio, first of all, it's a great defensive position to then hold against anything coming out of Ohio or Indiana or even Illinois. But the other thing is, is if you cut the Ohio, Louisville is the main supply base for all federal operations west of the Appalachians. Mm. And so if you cut Louisville off from the supply, supply bases to the east, everything west, in other words, the Mississippi River campaign, the campaigns in Missouri, begin to wither and die on the vine for lack of supplies. Wow. So it's a huge, it's a, it's, it's a huge prize. Abraham Lincoln said in 1861, he said, I think to lose Kentucky is nearly the same as to lose the whole game. Wow. And he was right. He was absolutely right. Who was the Union commander at Perryville? Union commander was a guy named Don Carlos Buell, who has been in command of this army known as the Army of the Ohio for about a year. Uh, he's from Cincinnati originally. He, he had some business interests in the South and um, was one of those that had friends that were split by the war. And there's some people that questioned his loyalty. Um, he commanded the Army of the Ohio in the Tennessee campaigns and then at the Battle of Shiloh and then had been involved in, in several campaigns um, in northern Alabama uh, over toward Chattanooga and then ultimately back to Kentucky to repel Bragg. Um, kind of an aloof guy, though, um, good strategist, but as I tell people, he knew how to fight the war on a map but was not a very effective leader of men. There was actually one uh, Wisconsin officer described how in the year he served under Buell's command, he never saw Buell. But then when William Stark Rosecrans took over in late October of 1862, took over command of the army, he said, we saw Rosecrans once a week and wow. that made all the difference. Yeah. Okay. Is it true that the Battle of Perryville started off as a fight over who had access to drinking water at a creek called Doctor's Creek because both sides were extremely thirsty? That's absolutely true. As a matter of fact, in my book, the chapter where I open the battle is, is called Dying for Water, because in both a literal and a figurative sense, that's what was happening. Uh, the drought, there was a severe drought in central Kentucky in the summer and fall of 1862, comparable to what you may have been seeing if anybody's, if any of your listeners have been following what's been going on in Europe with the drought in Europe this year. The Ohio River, and if anybody's ever driven over that, you know it's a formidable deep river. 
was fordable in the fall of 1862. Wow. So you can imagine if the Ohio is fordable, some of these other rivers are pretty, and creeks are pretty dry. So water's at a premium. And so the first shots on October 8th, 1862 are, uh, the Federals are trying to secure Doctors Creek, which is one of the best water supplies they've seen in several days. And the Confederates are trying to hang on to it. And ultimately the Federals will win after a couple hours of skirmishing. Okay. Let's begin the opening course of battle. Who was attacking first and who was making progress during the fight? Well, after the initial, after that initial uh, fight over the water that we talk about, Buell is trying to concentrate his army for an offensive. But uh, because his army is late in arriving, he decides to postpone the offensive until the next morning. Bragg, for his part, um, decides to attack what is the for him, the most visible and the most accessible part of the Union Army. And by the way, he, as far as he's concerned, doesn't believe that the entire Yankee Army or the main body of the Yankee Army is facing him at Perryville. Mm. He believes he's only facing a small detachment. And so that detachment, which is the northern wing of Buell's army, um, 13,000 men under Alexander McCook, uh, they attack beginning at 2 o'clock. Mm. And um, in five hours of fighting along the ridges northwest of Perryville, uh, they will drive the Federals back. They will drive the Federals back a good mile and come very, very close to capturing the key Dixville crossroads, which had, had they done that, they would have cut McCook off from the rest of the army and probably destroyed, probably chewed up a good part of uh, Buell's army. As it was, they inflicted a lot of losses. In those five hours, 7,500 men fall, killed, wounded, captured, or missing, which if you do the math, is 1,500 men an hour. And it's one of the worst per hour casualty rates of the entire Civil War. You mentioned McCook. Wasn't he? A, wasn't there a large family? Wasn't he a member of a, a large family in the Union side? That was at five or six sons who fought who fought in the Civil War on the Union side. It's yeah, it's five or six sons. But if you count all the cousins, wow. it's actually four, 14. <laughs> they call them the Fighting McCooks, and they're all out of Cincinnati. And Alexander is is the one who becomes the most senior, although there are a couple others. His brother Daniel dies at Kennesaw Mountain in 1864, and his brother Edward becomes a noted uh, cavalry commander. Alexander's older brother, Robert, had been murdered by Confederate guerrillas um, in Tennessee in September of 1862. So the fighting McCooks are, have already given blood, you know, have already given of themselves to the Union cause. Um, and this, you know, McCook, first uh, battle as Corps commander, West, former West Point tactics instructor. Um, and, of course, he'll play prominent roles again at Stones River and, and then ultimately Chickamauga. Now, what stopped the Confederate advance at Perryville? Where did that take place, the halt? They stopped, and the Confederates actually stopped with the Dixville Crossroads, with skirmishers on the Dixville Crossroads. What stopped them, in fact, the, the, the commander at the end of the battle uh, that's at the point is a guy named St. John Liddell, who commanded a real tough Arkansas brigade mm. that actually had fired the first shots at Perryville and ultimately fired the last shots. They're the ones who were defending Doctors Creek. Mm. And he wants to push. He really wants to push and capture the crossroads. But it's dark. Total darkness has set in. They're hearing cheering of federal reinforcements, which are arriving from Buell's center. And um, there's the Confederates have... You know, basically, they basically fought out everybody that they had on the field. 
And so it's that combination of darkness and federal reinforcements. Um, Leonidas Polk, who happens to be right there at the front at the moment, Liddell asks him, let me go, let me do this. And Polk says, I want no more night fighting. And so about seven o'clock or so, because of those factors, uh, the battle, battle comes to a close. I always was fascinated with Leonidas Polk. I mean, uh, was he a divisional commander at the battle? Because I know later he was a corps commander later on in the war. Was he a divisional commander at the Battle of Perryville? Actually, he's a corps commander. He, below Bragg, he is the second ranking. It's Bragg, and then he's the next senior command officer in the Army. And then the other one, he's commanding the uh, left wing. Mm. No, the right wing, the right wing, excuse me. The left wing is under the command of William Hardy. And yeah. there, so Polk, Polk is on the field. He's actually the senior officer on the field because Bragg's in the rear at his headquarters. And so he's riding around. In fact, has a near miss just before Liddell talks to him. Um, he rides to a group of men that, that he thinks are Confederates and, and finds out fairly quickly that they are the 22nd Indiana Infantry. Ouch. But manages to bluff his way out. I, I, he was an Episcopal bishop. I don't know if he ever played poker. He should have because he, he bluffed his way out and told Liddell and some of Liddell's officers, every mother's son of them are Yankees, open fire. <laughs> and they actually, in 90 seconds, obliterate two-thirds of the 22nd Indiana. Jeez. Um, and that, but that also creates the opening for Liddell to put his skirmishers forward at the crossroads. And with that momentum, he's turning to Polk and saying, let me press this. We've got him. We've got him. And then Polk, who sh- who's understandably shaken by what has happened, I want no more night fighting. Was Liddell he- actually gives me the best, sorry, Lid- I just I love this description of Polk. Liddell writes in his memoirs after the war, he says, Leonidas Polk had all the attributes of a great general except strategy and tactical combination. Ouch. Yeah, I know, right? But wasn't he also a friend of uh, Jefferson Davis as well? That's why he rose so high? Yes. Uh, He he had actually graduated from West Point shortly after Davis and uh, resigned his commission, became an Episcopal bishop, extremely well-known throughout the South. So Davis knew him. They knew each other. They'd gone back a long way. He applies to Davis and gets basically becomes a general in the Confederate Army, thanks to Jefferson Davis. And that patronage will keep him, have him survive a lot of crises and a lot of controversies that lesser men with lesser support would have been uh, toppled over until his death in 1864 on the battlefield. Who were the key figures, the key leaders in the Union Army who helped stop the rebels at, 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 the, at that crossroads there? You know, um, it, 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 this is a tough answer. I'm going to quote a soldier in the first Wisconsin who said it wasn't generalship there. It was simply the fighting staying qualities of the federal soldier. Mm. And that's true. Um, the tenacity of the individual regiments. If you study this battle in detail, you realize the discipline of the federal soldiers was fantastic. The Confederates fought well, don't get me wrong, but the the leadership, particularly of the, the captains and the colonels of the individual regiments, I will say the one general, he'll be promoted actually after this battle to general because of his performance. The one general that really stands out to me is John Starkweather, who holds um, the left. Um, if you imagine the last federal position is kind of a half circle, 
he holds the left side of that half circle and the right side of that half circle would be where the Dixville Crossroads was. Okay. So he comes to mind. There's a couple others, Lovell Rousseau, Michael Gooding, that are heroes as well. Um, you know, they stand out among the senior leaders. But at the end of the day, you know, I come back to that quote from that private in the first Wisconsin. It was the fighting staying qualities of the federal soldier. Now, didn't Phil Sheridan, wasn't he involved in the battle? Did he distinguish himself at Perryville by any chance? He did. Actually, this is Perryville is an important battle for him because this is his first battle as a division commander. Mm. And it's actually his division that fires the first shots during the uh, during the fighting for Doctors Creek. So that is his, you know, if you look at the, the history of Phil Sheridan's military career, you know, rising all, ultimately to command the U.S. Army in the 1880s, really this is, this is a major, major, major miles, milestone for him. Okay. Um, and his division will be engaged later on in the afternoon. And I should point out, it's also a major milestone for one of his young officers, 17-year-old um, Arthur MacArthur, who's the adjutant of the 24th Wisconsin, ah, who yes. also is fighting, also is seeing his first action at Perryville. And uh, it's his performance. Everybody talks about how the 17-year-old the kid whose voice is still changing um, had ice water in his veins. And nobody laughed at him or thought he was young and wet behind the ears again. But the MacArthur military dynasty also really a major milepost is right here at Perryville as well. Yes, yes. Now, please tell our listeners the aftermath of the battle. The Confederates are finally pushed back. What was the aftermath, you know, after when the battle ended? Uh, the Confederates fall back. The Confederates, if you look at the battle in isolation, have probably won. They have chewed up a significant part of McCook's Corps. They've inflicted about a thousand more Union casualties than they themselves have sustained. But by the end of the day, Bragg has finally realized just how many Union troops there are on the field, most of whom have not been engaged, but will be engaged first thing in the morning. And so Bragg, in the early morning hours of October 9th, orders the Army to retreat. And as a retreat, they originally retreat northeast to Harrodsburg, uh, but ultimately will start falling back. And then as the weather starts to change in mid-October, and it begins to threaten their line of communication back across the Wilderness Road, Bragg decides, you know, the, the Federals have, have retaken all the cities they'd lo that, that they'd lost, you know, Frankfurt, Lexington, some of these other places. You know, the campaign, the, the hopes of a Confederate Kentucky are, are glimmering, and it's time to go back to Tennessee. And so by Halloween, uh, the Confederates are out of Kentucky, and aside from cavalry raids, a few cavalry raids here and there, they won't be back. And so Kentucky will remain in the United States in control of the United States for the rest of the war. Why was Union General Buell relieved after the battle? Essentially, um, it was a lack of aggression in pursuit. Um, he, he had actually, they had tried to relieve him before the battle when the Army of the Ohio, his Army of the Ohio arrived in Louisville um, to for a period of about a, about a week of reef, just under a week of refitting. They actually tried to relieve him then, but the orders had said these are not to go into effect if you are planning or uh, planning a campaign or about to fight a battle. And the guy who was supposed to replace him, who would have been handed this hot potato, was George Thomas. Mm. And Thomas Thomas protested and said, "Hey, you know, he's planning a campaign. You know, I it, it, this actually may not be the right time to do this." So the orders had been suspended 
That's the word that the War Department used was suspended. Mm. So Buell knew he was on the hot seat. But after it, the, the the word that's used to describe it, I, I think is is the best one used is by Ken Doe, who said that Buell escorted Bragg out of Kentucky. His pursuit was not all that energetic, and uh, basically letting Bragg off the hook without fighting another battle. You know, if you look at the Maryland campaign, for example, McClellan fought Lee twice, mm. three times if you count Shepherdstown. He fought him at South Mountain, he fought him again at Antietam, and then he fought him the third time if you want to score it that at Shepherdstown. There's only one major battle in the Kentucky campaign. Now, does Buell achieve his objective to secure Kentucky? Yes. But might there have been more that could have been done, at least in the eyes of the War Department? The answer was yes. His seat was already very warm as it was. That's the pretext that they need to replace him with General Rosecrans, and that'll happen on October 24th, 1862. Tell, tell our listeners, where exactly is the Perryville battlefield as, as relation to like a major Kentucky city like Lexington? Where is it in relation to? Perryville Battlefield is about an hour drive, 45 minutes to an hour drive southwest of Lexington. If you follow, actually, if you look at a map of Kentucky and you follow US 68 southwest from Lexington, it'll run you right into Perryville. It's almost smack dab in the center of the state. And um, it's the intersection of US 150 and US 68. And that's uh, like many cities that see Civil War battles that are fought in and around it. Um, it's it's a road junction. It's got six roads that come into it. Okay. You know, in, 20, in 2019, I, I visited Perryville Battlefield, and what struck me, I remember it was a boiling hot day, so I can imagine what the soldiers felt like, you know, when they fought in October in the, in the dry, dusty weather. Um, what struck me was, even though it's not on the same scale as like Gettysburg, it's still a pretty vast battlefield. Now, you, you worked on the Battlefield Preservation Association. I mean, tell our listeners, how extensive is the battlefield? Because I, I hiked all around it. it. It took me all day long. It's very big. It is. It is. It's actually, it preserved land right now is about 1,500 acres. Mm. So it's, it's, it's huge. And you figure, for example, the preserved land at, say, Gettysburg National Military Park is 6,000 acres. Wow. So you're 25% the size of Gettysburg. And the land when you're there, and you probably got a sense of this when you were there, the land when you're there um, is basically 1862. Yeah. It's ours uh, called Perryville and Shiloh, the two best preserved Civil War battlefields um, in the country. And when you're there, you're looking at what it looked like. And the park staff does a fantastic job with those hiking trails, but yeah. also keeping keeping the uh, terrain looking like it did at the time of the at the time of the battle. So it's it's a it's a great place. First of all, being out in the central bluegrass is just it's beautiful anyway. Yeah. But then you know just the, seeing what happened and contemplating what happened, it's a, it's a tremendous tremendous place. What yeah, what struck me was how hilly it is. I mean, I'm going from hill to hill, down into a valley, then up another hill. So they were just going over hill and over dale, you know, during this battle, the way I felt it. I mean, I was just, I mean, sometimes it was tree-lined, sometimes very exposed areas. Exactly. Uh, Richard McMurray jokes that Perryville is uphill both ways. Yeah. And he's he's right. He's absolutely right about that. Yeah. It's They're fighting ridge to ridge to ridge, which, you know, is a factor. As the day goes on, the heat, dehydration, yeah. and then going up and down those hills, you know, it's, it, sometimes it can be tough for us 
um, you know, as modern visitors coming out of our air-conditioned cars. Yeah. Imagine trying to do it with full pack and a rifle and people shooting at you. And a severe drought, too. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, dehydration was a huge factor. Uh, In the march out from Louisville to Perryville, over the course of that week of maneuver, I calculated that the armies, both armies, on average, march one mile less per day than the day before. Wow. And the reason for that was dehydration. They just didn't have the stamina. Yeah. Chris, please tell our listeners, where can they find your book, The Civil War at Perryville? You can find it on Amazon.com um, in both print and e-editions. You can find it on BarnesandNoble.com. You can find it, actually, if you go visit the Perryville Battlefield Park, um, it's for sale in the park gift shop. Um, and you can also order it from my publisher, The History Press. Chris, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. And thank you again for sharing your great, magnificent expertise on the Civil War with our listeners. Hey, my pleasure, Matt. Always great to talk to you. Please take care. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing football historian Terrence Trooper, where we will be discussing the 50th anniversary of the 1972 Washington Redskins and the Over the Hill Gang. And just a reminder to my listeners and anyone out there that my latest book, Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches, is on sale at Amazon. Just type in that title, Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches, It's on sale at 30% off, and it will remain on sale until after Super Bowl 57 is played. Just uh, if you're looking for a stocking stuffer for Christmas, it's right there. Go out and get it. You'll enjoy it immensely. Thank you, and good night.